0: This week in the Dan Cave, still in quarantine, still no baseball, the NFL Draft's still two weeks away, but we've got plenty to talk about. Colby of Soto Mojo, and Seahawk Maven joins me. We're going to talk Mariners and Seahawks up next. Welcome to the Dan Cave.
1: Here's your host, Dan Vien.
0: Welcome once again to all of you into the Dan Cave, the home studios here in Renton, Washington, where I have been quarantined or uh, sequestered in a way for going on four weeks now. Hopefully all of you are uh, staying safe and staying sane and being productive with your time during uh, all of this downtime. Um, I appreciate you taking a little bit of that time to tune in and listen to the podcast episode 78 now as we inch ever closer to our 100th episode. Very special guest today, which is going to give me the opportunity to talk Uh, Not just Seahawks, which has been the focus for the last month or so, but also some Mariners. Colby Patnode, site expert at SodaMojo.com and also Seahawk Maven. Uh, We're going to talk Mariners, uh, sort of the outlook for the draft for them and uh, the possibility of relaunching the baseball season and how some of the specifics of um, how this downtime may be affecting the Mariners and their rebuild um, efforts. And then uh, we're going to look ahead to the NFL draft. Uh, as we have been uh, for the last few weeks, just two weeks away now from the first round. Um, and uh, Colby also, as I said, contributed contributes to uh, Sports Illustrated, Seahawk Maven, has some really cool ideas about uh, how the Seahawks may approach the draft. So without further ado, let's get into it. Colby and I talking baseball and football for you today. Thanks for listening in. All right, so joining me now, Colby Patnode of Soto Mojo and Seahawk Maven. So... Welcome into the Dan Cave Colby.
1: Hi, uh, I'm glad to be here, Dan.
0: It's, it's nice to have you because I haven't talked baseball in a while. And some of that is out of self-preservation because uh, it's killing me that we don't have regular season games to cover right now. Um, but some of that too is there just really isn't a lot to talk about. Um, and the focus is on the NFL draft. But I love the things that you do at Soto Mojo. I've been reading you guys for a long time. And, um, right out of the gate, what I want to ask you is this, you, even throughout everything that we have been living through for the last few weeks, you have been prolific in writing, uh, on the site. How has it been for you finding things to write about without regular season games happening?
1: Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult, um, because, Typically our, the off season is our busiest time at the website. Everybody's interested in team building and trades and free agents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you do that in the winter, it's pretty easy because there's always an idea that you haven't thought of or something you can present or there's new information. Um, so you would think, you know, well, we could just do that in the regular season, but in fact, we can't because we just spent the entire off season talking about it. Uh, so, you know, it, it's been difficult. There's not, it's, it's not so much the game reporting. We don't, Actually, don't do a lot of you know game recap type of stuff. It's right. more of right. we don't have the data to look at. We can't see these guys with our eyes and make you know uh, make these observations. So it's been pretty difficult. So we've been really kind of focusing on the past for the most part, looking at some uh, you know some some of Jerry Depoto's moves. We're gonna try and grade as many of his trades as we can, and there's over a hundred. So we're gonna skip a few of the smaller ones, but we've been trying to do that stuff. Um, it's, it's been nice you know I've been looking back at the history I've been learning about some of the uh, some of the deals that almost went down that didn't go down and there's you know a few famous ones uh, here today I have one going up it might have just gone up I can't remember quite when I scheduled it but the Mariners almost landed Mariano Rivera back in 1996 and yeah I uh, love that story yeah so you know I've been going back and I've been looking at that type of stuff so it's it's been hard and we're writing a lot about things that I wouldn't normally write about. Um, because we've never had to with Jerry DePoto as your general manager, he gives you a lot to write about in terms of transactions and a rebuild is always, you know, pretty exciting and there's lots of different avenues. So yeah, it's been tough. Um, it's going to continue to be tough, but, um, you know, I, I am learning some, uh, some history and things like that. So overall, not too bad, but I will definitely be excited when uh, baseball returns.
0: Yeah. And you did take time to address the rebuild and specifically Jerry DePoto overseeing the rebuild. And and this is something that, um, I think, you know, where I stand on this and, and we're, we're definitely on the same page as it comes to this, but there's still a lot of cynicism out there among, you know, sort of the general Mariner fan base that, uh, you know, they don't want to hear the word rebuild. It's a four letter word to them. They've heard it before. They don't trust this GM, uh, because the one 20 years ago broke their heart. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of uh, recap a little bit, uh, what you touched on in that piece and sort of where you stand right now on the job that DePoto is doing in turning this roster over. Sure.
1: Um, Obviously, you know, if you guys haven't read it, head to Soto Mojo and you can find it. Um, but I, I'm I'm a fan of Jerry Depoto. I have been for the last couple of years. And in general, it's, you know, just talking to the idea that he's a bad GM because essentially Jack Sorenzic and Bill Bavasi were bad GMs and the Mariners mm-hmm. can't have a good GM. You know, that's just one of those things that people say and it just. Drives me absolutely nuts. And I hadn't touched on it in a while, so I decided to write the piece. And basically, there are a lot of good indicators that Jerry DiPoto is very good at his job. Um, and one of them is the uh, the just looking at the prospects that he's brought in in recent years. It's very easy to see that when you go from the 30th, worst, 30th best farm system or worst in all of baseball to Baseball America ranking you in the top five. And that happens over the course of 18 months roughly. Uh, That's a really positive sign. And we're finding guys that uh, Jerry DePoto has valued. They're coming up to the majors. They're performing relatively well. We haven't seen a lot of them yet, but they come to Seattle and this is another reason they get better when they get here. Jared Kelnick's a better Mm -hmm. player now than he was with the Mets. And part of that is, you know, he's here, he's older. It's another year of experience, but part of that is the player development system. And for years, the Mariners biggest flaw has been their inability to develop players. It wasn't mm-hmm. that they couldn't draft. They didn't take the wrong players. Dustin Ackley was the right pick. As much as people want to say that Mike Trout was the right pick, that's okay. hindsight. That's 100% hindsight. Dustin Ackley was the right pick. They couldn't develop him. They couldn't develop Mike Zinino. You know, They couldn't develop Justin Smoke or Jesus Montero. And some of those are the Mariners' fault. Some of those aren't. But now what we're seeing from Jerry DiPoto's regime is they're picking the right players, they're making them better, undisputably better in their minor league system. And we're not talking about guys who are three, four, five years away that we have to dream on. We're talking about guys who could, in theory, have been up by the middle of this year, June, July, maybe August. Julio Rodriguez, probably a year, probably a year after that. But Kelnick had a shot to be here in June or July around the All-Star yeah. break. Logan yeah. Gilbert could have been up by May. Um, so, you know, one of the big things is, is that Jerry Depoto, A, he's, he's identifying the correct talent. B, he's hired a staff that can develop that talent. And he really, and one of the big things here is that he understands what his staff is good at. What are the Seattle Mariners good at? And what the Seattle Mariners are good at right now is developing pitching. You look at the number of arms that are rolling through that have a lot of upside. They're very exciting. We're talking about, you know, Gilbert's and Kirby's and the, Justice Sheffields and the Justin Dunns and even the Brandon Williamson's and the Isaiah Campbell's. He understands that his staff can develop those guys and he's selecting them. So his draft is ma- his drafting is matching with his strengths and it's very important for general managers to understand what they're good at, what their team is good at and adapting to that instead of trying to make it work because you like to make it work. The example here is Jack Sorensic when he first got here You know That first offseason, he made the big trade. He brought in Franklin Gutierrez, and he brought Mm -hmm. in Jason Vargas, and it was going to be, we're a run prevention team. That's how we're going to do this. We're a run prevention team. And they had success in 2009. They come back in 2010, and obviously it's a disaster. They lose 100 games. It's terrible. They have to trade Cliff Lee. And Jack Sorenzic, instead of sticking to his original plan, run prevention, run prevention, run prevention, play to the ballpark, he panics, and he goes back to what he's always done, or what he did in uh, Milwaukee, right-handed power bats. Defense be damned. We need to score runs. And it's a disaster. first base types. Exactly. It's a disaster. Jerry DePoto's not doing that. When he came here, the very first press conference, he said, we want to be young, athletic, difficult to play against. Mm -hmm. And for the first couple of years where Jerry is just trying to keep this thing afloat under the directive of ownership, for the most part, he did that. And now, as he's actually gotten permission to rebuild, we're seeing him target those players, those players who are young, they're athletic, they have many gifts, many tools. And when you start to piece together what the potential starting lineup can look like in a couple years, they're going to be a very difficult team to play against. So I I think all of those reasons just fill me with so much hope, and they're tangible. And that's the thing that kind of drives me nuts here, is we're not talking about you know, hoping and dreaming and wishing that this guy can be good. We're not asking for Nick Franklin to be a superstar when he can't be right. We're asking Jared Kelnick to hit his ceiling or to even hit 75%. And you have an all-star right there. So that's what it is. It's more about, I have visual, tangible statistical proof that this is working. And I think it's time that people, you know, embrace that and celebrate that.
0: Yeah. And I do think that as, as each day goes by, and obviously we're in a holding pattern right now, but as each day goes by, and, and that, that evidence continues to mount. I do think those voices of, of the cynics are growing quieter and, and the people that actually take the time to read about this stuff and, and read people who analyze it such as yourself and, and so many of the other great writers that are out there and, and take a little bit of time to dig deeper into it are seeing that things are different and the results are coming, uh, because of the, the new execution of the new philosophy, I, I think the cynics are are getting drowned out now and I think they're just the people who are the casual fans who don't want to take time to look any further into it and so I I do see, you know, some of those some of that momentum growing, the support for the rebuild if you will. What's frustrating is that there's nothing tangible happening right now and we should be seeing games and we should have seen probably two starts in Tacoma by Logan Gilbert at this point, And a couple of weeks uh, with Jared Kellenick playing every day and, and seeing what, what the 26 man roster at the big league level was doing. How do you think this, this missed time that we're in right now, and we'll talk in a minute about what's could happen next, but for however, however long this lasts, we've already lost a month of spring spring training and two weeks of games, essentially. How do you think it, specifically is affecting that rebuild effort in, in a way in Seattle that's maybe different than it's affecting some of the other organizations. Sure. Uh, I think it is going to affect
1: the Mariners. Here's the deal. is It's a level, it's a level playing ground, right? Everybody's going to be affected by this. Of course. But the Mariners are in an interesting spot because like I talked about earlier, they have a bunch of guys who are relatively close to the majors and they need this time in the minors to continue to push that timetable. So when you look at a team like the Mariners who are rebuilding and actually have a plan of action, um, as opposed to a team who's rebuilding like the Orioles who are two, three, four years away Mm -hmm. uh, from being where the Mariners even are, it it impacts them differently. Right now we're talking about Logan Gilbert probably was going to come up in May or June, um, of this year. And a big part of the reason, that they were even going to hold him off was to kind of uh, manage his workload, right? They don't want him to come up in April and then have to have him sit every three starts because they don't want him to go over 150 innings. So this layoff, what it does is it does actually increase the possibility that maybe if they do play games that Gilbert could actually start because you don't have that, that worry that he's going to over, you know, he's going to go over his, his innings limit. But what you're losing here is a lot more significant and that's just time to play the games. We can talk about, you know, Logan Gilbert as the example here, but there's a routine that you need to follow when you're a starting pitcher. You have to get your work in, you have to throw your bullpens and you have to kind of get in that, that rhythm, that routine of the day-to-day grind. And right now it's just not possible. I know the Mariners are looking at ways to try and keep that routine going, but for any, bu- any player right now, that routine's not there and it's very difficult to find. So when you start looking at inter- what it does in terms of the rebuild, I, it's really hard to argue that it doesn't push the rebuild back probably a year um, or you know at least a couple months because Jared Kelnick can't get closer to the big leagues without playing in the minor leagues. He needs to play. Um, so it, it is a pretty big blow there. Um, but again, thankfully, with the rules that have been set up with the service time situation, not a lot of Mariners are going to gain any service time. So it's not like, you know, Jared Kelnick's one year closer to free agency. Um, not even justice Sheffield is going to be one year closer to free agency. Guys like JP Crawford, it seems like he's right on the borderline of qualifying for that. Yeah. Um, and I think he is going to qualify. So maybe he gets pushed a year. Guys like uh, shed long, He's again, right on the borderline. He might get pushed a year, but for the most part, the young impact guys are still in the minors. They're still not on the 40 man. So they're not losing any service time. They're just uh, losing development time. And that is going to hurt. So it's it's, it's unfortunate.
0: Who knows how it's going to go from here on out, but it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how this affects the rebuild as far as, Outside acquisitions go, because you think of you think of a player like Mookie Betts, traded to the Dodgers last year of his deal. Whether this year gets played or not, whether they play a hundred games or zero, his service time clock is running. He's a free agent at the end of the year, and so whereas. You know, some of us thought, and there were different schools of thought about when when would the Mariners feel it's appropriate to be aggressive in free agency and really go for a big ticket player or two? Would it be the 2020 twenty twenty-twenty-one offseason or the twenty-one-22 offseason? It'll uh, I just can't even wrap my head around what it's gonna look like now if we have a, a really, really abbreviated season or God forbid no season at all. Um, it's gonna be crazy. we could be talking about no trade deadline this year and no trade deadline activity, which which I believe and I've said on the show, I think was the beginning of the window that DePoto was looking at to acquire some impact talent to add to this rebuild. And now we might not even see that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I was right there with you. I kind of thought I, I, I thought he would be a little more aggressive this offseason, not aggressive in, you know, signing the big free agents, but I thought maybe he'd sign a starter like a, quality, like a Kyle Gibson type of guy um, mm-hmm. to kind of start there. But when he didn't, I kind of looked at this and I said, okay, I think Jerry DePoto's is probably going to go out and he's going to go get uh, – the example I use is he's going to go get his Trevor Bauer um, this July like the Reds did last year. And maybe yeah. it doesn't make them better right now, but in a year he's going to add another player in the offseason or two. Uh, he's going to make another trade. We know that. And in a year maybe we're starting to look at this team being – you know. 84 to 86 win team um, because the trade deadline is when he's going to acquire his first piece. The young guys are going to get play. They're going to get a little bit better. Then you can kind of go into the next spring or that winter rather and, you know, kind of add the the other pieces that you need to start to become competitive again. So, yeah, that's unfortunate. I was kind of right there with you. I thought that this, this uh, trade deadline would be when he would kind of, you know, maybe it's a Matt Boyd or maybe it's John Gray or, you know, maybe it's I don't know, Andrew Benatendi or whoever, whatever it is. I thought maybe this was going to be the time that they would do that. But, uh, yeah, you know, unfortunately that just, we just don't know. We have no idea if any of that can happen or will happen. So, uh,
0: well, what we do know now is there will be an opportunity to add talent, uh, more young talent to the rebuild because it, it, it sounds like there will be a draft this year. Now it's going to be one of the most unusual drafts we've ever seen in any sport, because um, because the NCAA didn't hold spring sports this year, and so some of these guys who are just draft eligible this year aren't. There's no games to play in, and and as you know, there's there's a ton of movement among prospects based on how they do in the months leading up to the draft. Um, you can have an idea what you think of a prospect going into December, and then they could completely change their profile with their spring season. What we do know now is that the draft can be held. These are the rules agreed to by the players association and or the players union and baseball as early as June 10, no later than July 20. It's a pretty big window there. And we're not even sure at this point, if, if baseball is going to be played at that point or not, major league baseball has the, the option of reducing it down to as few as five rounds. It seems to me that the prevailing notion is it'll be 10 rounds. And again, I want to talk about how this affects the Mariners maybe differently than it does other organizations. Let's take the extreme example. Let's say it's a five round draft. The Mariners acquired the comp B pick from Milwaukee in the Narvaez deal. So they do have they would have six picks instead of five that most organizations would have in that five rounds. Do you think a truncated draft would would play to the advantage or disadvantage of the Mariners? Or again, are we just where everybody is kind of on a level playing field?
1: Uh, I, I would lean to say that everybody's kind of on a level playing field in terms of the scouting, right? Because there's nothing to scout right now. So in that sense, everybody's on a level playing field and you just kind of have to rely on your reports that you've had that you've built for the last, you know, two, three, four years as you watch these guys. But you mentioned the extra pick that the Mariners have, you know, assuming that the bonus pool money works, you know, as it would if it was a 10 round draft they just narrow it to five. Having that extra pick gives you more money to spend. So I think it's possible that what you could see here is you could see the Mariners leverage that pick, that extra pick and walk, walk out of this draft with two first round talents. Um, it's something they've done in the past with Jerry DePoto. Even they got Evan White. They got a George or a, not, got Sam Carlson in the same draft, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't have the extra pick. They had to sacrifice for the rest of the 10 rounds to get that done. They don't have to do that here. And the fact that they have six picks to most people's five kind of means they can play around with this and they can probably, they could possibly get two top 10 type of talents. And maybe one of them is a top 10 talent because he got hurt. A guy like JT again, who has Tommy yeah. John surgery, he might fall to the second. I don't think it's likely, but what could happen is Seattle could, what if Seattle takes him at six and then at the, at the uh, pick 42, I believe is their next pick. What if they go and they get one of those high school arms who right now is leaning towards college because if you're not drafted in the first however many rounds they decide to have five or ten, then you're gonna go, you know, you're not you're gonna go to college because you're not signing for twenty thousand dollars, right? So maybe it works for those guys like Mick Abel who says, Well, you know what, this is a weird year. I'm gonna go to college, I'll re enter the draft either next year if I go to a JUCO or I'll enter the draft in a couple years. Or what have you. Well, maybe the Mariners can say, well, hold on there, Mick. Maybe what we can do is we can give you your $3 million bonus that you're looking for if you were drafted in the first round. Right. Uh, So we'll take an underslock guy. Maybe it's a Reed Detmers at six. Somebody like that. We'll save a couple hundred thousand. And then with that extra pick, we can take a college senior or we could take a Wyatt Mills type. Somebody who's probably a big leaguer, but not an impact one. And we could save that money. That's something the Mariners can do that other teams can't. Um, And the fewer rounds there are, the more that benefits Seattle's aggressive spending. If that's throughout, they want to go, if it's 10 rounds, you know, it, it, obviously there's more money to go around, which means teams can kind of stretch those last few picks and kind of do the same. But if it's five rounds, then I, I, I think the Mariners are in a pretty good spot because of that extra pick. And Jerry Depoto, as we know, is very creative. Um, so him and Scott Hunter can put their heads together and find a way to leverage that extra pick and probably walk away with two first-round talents if they decide to go that route. They might yeah. you know, just, just do a straight draft and just draft the highest guy on their board, and that can work out just fine too. But I, I do think there's a potential here for the Mariners to take advantage of a shorter draft. But at the end of the day, I think if you ask Jerry DePoto and Scott Hunter, they would like pretty much a full draft. Um, Right. So as as a whole, it's on the scouting side of things. It's a wash for all the teams. They all have, you know, roughly the same amount of data um, right now in terms of manipulating your draft board a little bit to try and get more talent, more higher end talent. uh, The Mariners are in a pretty good spot. So
0: well, and I wonder too, if, if uh, again, sticking with the idea, the, the most extreme, that let's say it's a five-round draft, I, I do wonder with uh, the undrafted free agency being capped at $20,000 bonuses, if that, if that might give the Mariners a slight edge. Because cause a player that's that's either a high school player thinking about going to college or a college player who might be thinking about going going back if he has some eligibility remaining just to increase his draft stock, get a bigger bonus next year, there's more opportunity perhaps in, in the Marin organization. And, and they might like some of the things that they've seen in the way, especially pitching, in the way that their player development staff is doing things. And, and I think we've seen it from Jerry Depoto; He's a pretty solid recruiter. And I think it becomes a recruiting job at that point. And I wonder if more so than some other organizations, if they might have an opportunity with all those players being free agents to grab a little bit more of that high-end talent because there's more opportunity in the system.
1: Yeah, it's definitely possible. Uh, you know, Seattle's a pretty uh, pretty nice place to envision yourself playing professional baseball. Uh, the reputation of the minor leagues and the player development is certainly continuing to go up and up and up, which obviously helps you, especially if you're a pitcher. If you're, you know, if you're a guy who is probably going to be drafted in the 11th, 12th round, that type of thing, uh, you know, maybe you'd think about, well, I could go back to school as a senior and probably make, you know, Fifteen twenty thousand dollars more as a senior draftee because those guys get uh, they get pretty well screwed uh, most years, anyways. But if you're if you're that if you're that kid who's you know doesn't really want to go to college if you're a high school kid or if you're you know I want to start my pro career right away, Seattle's a very enticing place uh, to go, and you get to pick. It's like uh, undrafted free agency in the NFL, where mm-hmm. you get to a point where it's like you know it might be better if I'm undrafted, than... If I, you know, if I'm going late, um, so I get to pick where I get to p- be developed and Seattle right now certainly has one of the best reputations in terms of player development, particularly on the pitching side of things, uh, um, in the entire game. So I think it's a possibility that they could definitely, uh, you know, turn into a recruiting job. And I mean, we, we've heard Jerry DePoto, he's a smart, he's a charismatic guy. Um, you know, he's charming. He, he definitely has a charm about him. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, I think he could play up pretty well in those, you know, on the phone with those kids and maybe getting them just, just come check us out. i I mean, if it's possible to travel at that point, but I, I think, yeah, I think there's a possibility there that they could maybe have an edge up on the free agent class of this, um, despite having no financial edge there, no team will, but the opportunity to get to the majors, a good player development system. Jerry Depoto, a smart organization, a beautiful ballpark, um, really nice accommodations as far as minor league teams go. Seattle does have. So I think it's a a pretty nice sales pitch that uh, Jerry can lay out to these guys. And I think it's a possibility to to maybe gain some ground on other teams.
0: Yeah. Well, let's hope there might be some (laughs) silver lining to all of this if it turns out that way. Uh, One more baseball thing before we move on and talk some football with you. I do want to get your thoughts on the – the current idea being knocked around uh, to try to get the season launched soon, which um, just the basic details would be the entire season, at least at the outset, would be played in Arizona using spring training facilities and um, in the Arizona Diamondbacks ballpark. Um, massive restrictions on player um, – where a player can go, what he can do basically being sequestered in hotel rooms, not able to see your family, um, (laughs) under quarantine when you're not at the ballpark. And then when you are at the ballpark, um, players sitting in the stand six feet apart, instead of in the, in the dugout. Um, it seems like a logistical nightmare. It seems like I can't even begin to, to list all the, all the challenges in this, but when you're talking about the alternative being no baseball at all, how realistic do you think this is and and how do you feel about the idea um, in general?
1: Yeah, uh, this plan is um, it represents a battle between my reptilian brain and my human brain uh, because my reptilian brain is, oh, baseball. Yes, do it. Like, let's let's yeah, get this play. thing. Started. Yeah, it's baseball. It's, it's fine. Let's do it. Um, the human side of me, though, looks at this like you do and sees all the logistical problems. I think first and foremost, uh, the plan as it sits right now, I'm not a fan of. Um, really at all uh, other than again, the reptilian side that's saying it's baseball. So yeah, we'll do it. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, this plan can't even begin to carry any kind of water until we have, you know, widespread testing that can be done quickly and is available to the general public in um, mass. I don't want to hear any stories about major league baseball buying all the tests or whatever, to try and get this plan. And that's, that's ridiculous. So it has to be, you have to be able to test these guys fairly regularly, I would assume, um, especially in, you know, relatively close quarters that baseball can be. You have to get these te- guys tested. I would guess every couple days, at least maybe weekly, if you really want to stretch it. Uh, yeah. But that test has to be available to everybody. It's, you know, Sh- Shedlong and Malik Smith shouldn't get a test before I can, just because they're professional athletes. You know, so I, I think that's that's the major hurdle number one. If we in the next month or so can get to that test, and it does sound like not to get too you know scientific or political or however you want to word sure. it, but it does sound like there are you know some positive steps being taken on this test. I know there was a company who uh, they they've created a test that can detect you know in five minutes whether you have it, um, twelve minutes if you don't have it. Um, so those are definitely promising, but those need to be produced you know in mass and available to the general public um, before I'm even interested in talking about this. So that's problem one problem two is the idea that you're going to quarantine, you know, professional athletes who are making millions of dollars into basically one city uh, in Phoenix, Arizona uh, you're talking about prop assuming they do. I'm going to guess that they're going to allow the entire 40 man roster to be, you know, with the, with the team just because there's going to be injuries and you can't call up guys from the minors if there are no minors. So I'm going to guess we're talking what 30 teams, 40 players, 1200 players. Plus I don't know how 10, 15, 20 guys for staffing, uh, per team. We're talking about 13, 1400 guys that are just going to descend on Arizona. Um, I think that creates some logistical problems for the municipalities down there, uh, which I'm sure they're, you know, in contact and talking to here. Uh, They need the, they need that permission. Uh, But that, that's another logistical problem. Um, Obviously the asking guys to, you know, be away from their family for four and a half months. There's no, there's no going home. They can't bring their, their wives or their kids with them. They're in quarantine. They can't risk that. So that, that's a big, that's a big issue here for a lot of these guys. Um, and it's, you know, it's a human issue that I don't think many of us understand. We think professional athletes are more than human and they're not. So, um, you know, I, I've seen the, the comparisons about the military, um, and how those guys are gone for 12, 18 months, whatever it is. Um, and so baseball players should be able to suck it up for four and a half months. I just, that one, that one bugs me quite a bit. We're talking about two completely different situations. Um, We're talking about two completely different understood circumstances here. And I just, why are we comparing professional athletes to soldiers anyways? Uh, And I I think probably the big one or not the big one, but certainly one that's not being discussed as much as it should. What about the weather in Arizona in June and July? We're talking about 110 degrees average. You're right. We're talking about 106 average in Phoenix. And we're talking about we'll play double headers. We're going to play outside. There's only one indoor stadium that they can play in. And 30 teams can't play there every day. You know what I mean? So it's like, what are we talking about here? How how are you going to keep these guys hydrated? How are we going to keep these yeah. guys healthy? Uh, I just, so there's so many logistical problems with this. To be honest, I don't really care about whether or not fans are allowed in the game. I know that's been a sticking point for some te- for some you know people in general. I don't really care. I'll watch on TV. I watch most of the games on TV anyways. Oh, imagine
0: the ratings. Uh, just imagine yes. for as as starved as the sports fan is right now. Um, exactly. I mean, even just this NFL draft alone is going to get astronomical ratings. It is.
1: It is. Um, and that's, I'm sure, you know, why it, Major League it, Baseball is trying to push this right now.
0: I do love some of the creativity of these sports ne- networks are using to fill the time. I just found out today, unfortunately, on day four, this thing that Red Zone is running uh, all 17 weeks of the NFL season, the Red Zone broadcast in real time, um, which is absolutely fantastic. So today is week four. So the Seahawks beat the Cardinals and uh, right now they're showing, um, I'm looking at this, that amazing uh, Tampa Bay, LA Rams game, 55-40 with 39 seconds left in the fourth. It's on the background. Yeah, check it out. It's, it's, uh, so we're at week four today and they're going to run every day now for the next 13 days. That's um, cool. Just That's cool. Rerun I did yeah. yeah. Very cool. Some of the things they're doing. I recorded game five of the, uh, 95 ALCS with the Yankees last night. I'll watch that today. Um, so lots of fun things. I did read one thing today and we'll kind of use this to transition into some football talk. And uh, so many more things we could get into on the Mariners. Uh, I would like to have you on uh, whenever the draft is set in stone, maybe we can do a draft preview. I know that you posted a, a three round mock a couple of days ago. Uh, Mariners fans should check that out at Soto Mojo. Really cool. And some specifics there on players. Um, I like the plan there, but I was reading a article in the LA times this morning and um, I think it was Bill Plasky wrote it and it was based around a quote um, from an administrator down there that he doesn't think they're going to see any sports at all until November. And I kind of skimmed through the article because I just didn't want to read the negative stuff, but he, he touched on something that, that could be pretty fascinating. If, If this thing ends up going longer than any of us want it to. And I work in the hospitality industry. We were originally told May 1st, that's obviously going to be June now. And I think it's going to be July at the earliest before we get back to work. And so, you know, then you get into the question of, of, can we have football at all this fall? Well, this idea was thrown out and has been thrown around by um, by school officials and administrators and, and owners in professional sports of if by the end of this year, and, and some of the most optimistic things I've seen, and you touched on it, are that by late fall, at least we should have ample, widespread, accurate testing, immediate testing, viral testing. So you can find out who has the antibodies and who doesn't who might be immune to this virus and who doesn't. And we might be on the the doorstep of a vaccine. Imagine if all of the sports leagues basically played between January and March of next year, all at the same time. You had, you had a later NFL season. You had uh, an abbreviated, probably major league baseball season, the NBA. I mean, let's not even talk about how tough it would be to turn around and then have another season after that. But, um, it was just something I read this morning. I thought was interesting. I don't even want to try to wrap my head around it yet, but we could be looking at something in 2021 that's going to blow our minds as far as resolving all this stuff.
1: That would, um, that would be interesting. That would cause quite a few, uh, scheduling problems for myself, but, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting to me. I I think, um, Man, trying to cram a baseball season into the coldest months of the year. Um, I'm assuming that he said, well, you'd play in Miami and Arizona, Texas.
0: He didn't didn't mention that, but that was my assumption as I read it is basically take the idea that they're throwing around now and do it Mm. that way. Yeah.
1: Right. And I mean, it Uh,
0: definitely would be cooler and easier to play doubleheaders in
1: Arizona in February than it would be in June and July. Yeah.
0: Uh, um, well, you'd have to have, you'd have to have expanded rosters and expanded yeah. pitching staffs and all of that. Cause you'd, sure. you'd have to be looking, looking ahead to the wear and tear for the next year. And, but, uh, anyway, things that we'll be talking about for a long, long time. I think, you know, three, four years from now, we'll be, we'll be looking back uh, specifically as it, as it relates to the Mariners on what, ha- how, what happened now affects, you know, ended up affecting, uh, what happened with their rebuild long term It's just crazy crazy stuff but let's talk about uh, a sport that is kind of happening right now um when one of the first things that popped into my head when i found out that i wasn't going to be working for minimum six weeks was hey i get to watch the draft like every minute of the draft i usually have to work during most if not all of it um and then it sounded like they were going to put it off and in fact on one of the last days that i worked um I had a face-to-face run-in with John Schneider who comes into our place on a regular basis. And he, he said definitively, no, we're going to push that back. So, you know, you read about some of the GMs and and head coaches who are not happy this is going on two weeks from today for the first round, but it is. And for those of us that like to talk about it and play around with it, at least we have this to look forward to. So we're two weeks away. Um, It's going to be a completely virtual draft, which means... Uh, it's going to be like when, you know, you and I and everybody else who plays fantasy football does our draft every year. Um, we all seem to pull that off pretty easily, Mm -hmm. um, but it does lend us some funny ideas. I specifically about the Seahawks. So we're, we're at the end, we should be. At the end of what is known as phase three of free agency, where where teams are bargain shopping and kind of tidying things up and and signing draft hedges and things of that nature, not so for the Seahawks. Still waiting on and Clowney. It's looking less and less likely at this point, based on reports that he's coming back. Uh, there's they've added some things to the pass rush in Bruce Irvin and Benson Mayoa. Do you think? I want your opinion on this. If if they don't sign Clowney or Griffin, right? If this roster that we're looking at today is the roster that we're looking at 14 days from now, knowing of course, that they will address the pass rush in the draft. Do you think they've done enough to get ready for that to improve it over last year? Uh, well, I, I think Have they set themselves up
1: heading into the draft. Um, you know, that's a difficult question to answer because this is not a particularly good edge class. There's not a lot of pass rushers. There are some interesting ones, um, you know, but obviously there's only one chase young. Um, So, yeah, I think you look at the roster as it sits right now. uh, I, I do think that obviously adding Mayoa and Irvin, those are two really nice uh, supplemental pieces that can rotate in. And if they need to start a couple of games for an injured, you know, for example, Jadavion Clowney, then I think you're going to be, Just fine there. Um, But in terms of just the talent on the roster right now, I don't think it's good enough unless we're going to see guys like Rasheem Green take another step. Are we going to see LJ Collier actually get onto the field? Uh, Because I think Mayoa and Irvin are very nice, and I was excited for both of those signings. Um, I think you've probably added 10 sacks between those two guys right there at least. Um, so I, I'm very happy with uh, with that with those additions here. But if they don't get Griffin and they don't get uh, Clowney, and there's a few other guys, Marcus Golden and maybe Clay Matthews. I mean, there's still guys out there who can probably get to the quarterback. But if they don't get either of those guys, then it feels like they have to just nail whoever they take, um, you know, in the draft to help fill this position. Uh, I don't think you need a superstar like Jadavion Clowney. Uh, on your defensive line to be a good defensive line, it helps. It makes everybody better. Sure, but you can certain I think you can piece together a good enough pass pass rush um, if you hit on the draft. And like I said, there's not a lot of guys in this draft that are going to be around when the Seahawks pick who feel like immediate impact eight, nine, right. 10 sack guys. But that doesn't mean they're not there. It just means we don't know it yet. So, I I, I think they need one of Clowney and Griffin um, or they need, you know, like a Marcus golden clay Matthews duo, something they need to add another pass rusher, a veteran, a productive one um, doesn't necessarily have to be clowny or Griffin, but I think in order to really set themselves up for a draft where they can just take the guys they like and not worry as much about need. I think they need to add, you know, a solid veteran, at least one more. Um, if not, one of Griffin or Clowney.
0: It would sure make me f- sleep better at night. You know, it's it's frustrating that we're here because it feels like we were exactly here 12 months ago, you know, headed into the 2019 draft. It was one of the major needs, have to improve the pass rush, have to get a guy that can impact as a rookie, have to build it that way. And then, you know, the trade down, a couple of their rumored targets were taken off the board. They end up with Collier. But, and, and, and they put so much, so many eggs in that basket. Of course they made the trade on the eve of the regular season for Clowney, but even that, as we saw, wasn't enough. I think they were, they were counting way too much on Ansa getting healthy and getting back to his, his normal, uh, his, his normal ceiling. I think we're in better shape than we were last year in the sense that instead of, instead of counting on, on a guy like Ansa coming off, um, a major injury that wasn't even healed yet. That was going to be months away. Might not start the regular season. Who knows if he was going to get back to his old self. You know, Irvin's pretty reliable. Mayo is an ascending player who's peaking in his late twenties and, and might be that Chris Clemens type yep. that kind of comes back home and finds, finds a perfect situation and takes the next step. We've, we saw flashes for machine green, you know, where, as I said, the Arizona, uh, the, the game at Arizona week four was just on. yet that incredible play where He chased down Kyler Murray and, And we saw those flashes. Um, We hope to get something out of Collier this year. But here we are going into the draft. If we don't sign Griffin or Clowney, even if they were to sign a Marcus Golden, who you can make a really good case for, is in a similar situation to Maoa, with even more production in his past, actually, that, God, they still have to nail it in the draft. And maybe not just with one guy, but with two but we thought that last year and they took Collier and then they sat on edge for the rest of the draft. They passed up Winovich and Ferguson and Crosby and guys like that. So it's, it's a tough spot to be in, but, but Carol said at the combine that he wants an elite big time player at the Leo position and he's not on the roster right now. So something's got to happen.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I guess I would say that just in general here, uh, I feel fairly confident that either Clowney or Griffin is going to be a Seattle Seahawk. Um, I Right now, I would lean towards Griffin. And honestly, if I could get something done with Griffin right now, then it's, you know, Jadavion, this is our final offer. Take it or leave it because we have to move on. Um, you know, Griffin, I wouldn't call him an elite player anymore, but he's certainly very good. Um, and if, you know, if Carroll wants an elite player at the Leo, Uh, I, am not sure one exists right now that he can go get, um, aside from Clowney. And, you know, it just kind of sounds like they're in a holding pattern here. And I, I, I I don't see, I, I don't think the Seahawks are wrong right now to dig in their heels on Clowney because let's be honest, he doesn't have a market. If he did, he would have signed by now. So they're just kind of playing this game of chicken. And eventually, Seattle has to pull the one card they have of leverage here and say, "Look, you got to sign with us, or we're moving on." And then, you know, the one piece of leverage Jadavion has is that people know the Seahawks are still interested, right? And if the Seahawks go and they sign Griffin, then Clowney doesn't have leverage. So, Uh,
0: if 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 an announcement comes out they've signed Griffin, then they've moved on. Did you see the uh, the supposed leaked? Offer sheet uh, that was making the rounds on Twitter the other day for for who? Clowny. No, so I, I somebody don't think I did. somebody took a photograph of you know any of us could type this up in a Word document, but what <laughs> right. appeared to be and it was from a guy who has he's not a reporter doesn't work for any news gathering agency at all. He's a guy that claims to be connected and he's been right on some stuff. And, he, and I think he's just a guy that knows some players personally. And he tweeted out a photograph of what appeared to be an offer sheet that was consistent with the reports from a couple of weeks ago that the Seahawks offered Clowney on March 26th. I want to say it was uh, two years, uh, $26 million, 11 and a half guaranteed with some sack escalator bonuses. I tend to believe that that's not legit. But if it is, Clowney ain't coming back to Seattle because it, it would mean that he took a photo and he allowed that to be circulated around, which means he's so ticked off right? Uh, that there's no way he's coming back. It's, it's going to make a really interesting 30 for 30 someday because this whole last 30 days with the Clowney and the Seahawks is one of the craziest things I've seen in all my lifetime of following the Seahawks.
1: Right. I, I think, you know, just from John Schneider's perspective here, though, I think – you know, when you walk into a negotiation, you say, okay, Jadavion, we really like you. Here's four years at $18.5 million and, per year. And Clowney goes, I want $21 million a year. You go, well, we can't do that. Here's 18 dollars Go out there, see what you can get, and then we'll, you know, give us a chance to match. Well, Clowney goes out there. He clearly doesn't find anything close to his $21 million that he wants. And so he comes back to John Schneider and says, well... I couldn't find anything, but I would like to hit free agency again next year and try uh, this, you know, coronavirus is screwing me or whatever the physical that I can't take is screw, whatever it is. I want to come back, but I want it to be on a one-year deal or a short-term deal. Well, if you're John Schneider, it's how am I supposed to fit $18 million for one year into my cap space right now? Yeah. uh, When, if you took the four-year deal, I could backload that, uh, give you a higher bonus, but backload it. And I can maneuver around the cap this year. There's a big difference between, you know, paying Clowney eighteen million dollars for one year versus paying him thirteen million dollars in year one and eighteen in year two and twenty two in year three, you know? Yeah. Um, so I I understand why the Seahawks response to that would be well, if you want a short term deal, then we have to get something too. So yeah. You're gonna take less salary.
0: that four year 18.5 average annual value is something Corbin Smith reported through his source uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and I think there's been some reports since then that validate that. And I think that scenario you painted is, is exactly what's happening. And here's, here's the thing that's interesting. We'll know at some point we will know exactly how this all went down because Clowney was very, very open and transparent after the fact about how things went down in Houston and was very willing to share the details of how that whole thing with Bill O'Brien and, and that negotiation or lack thereof ended up with him being traded to Seattle. So we'll find out at some point when this is all done, you know, how real was the Cleveland flirtation and how real was the report of the first Seattle offer and the second offer. Um, it's just, I wish I had a crystal ball because I'm, I'm kind of tired of it, to be honest with you. But even, even the Griffin idea, which, you know, like him as a player, I think, and this has to be entering into how Schneider's approaching all this. He's got to think about 2021 too, yeah. because in 2021, three quarters of what appears to be the best secondary we've had since the famed Legion of Boom, you know, Quandre Diggs, Quentin Dunbar just acquired from the Redskins and Shaq Griffin are all going to be up contractually You're not going to be able to keep them all. He's got to start planning for that. And so, you know, that's why, you know, the the shorter the term of a deal with Clowney hurts the team. And even a guy like Griffin, who's 30, 31, 32,
1: 32, I
0: think. I think he just turned 32 in March. If if I'm not mistaken, like him as a player, but again, maybe he'd have to be willing to do a third three-year deal that's structured like Dwayne Brown's was where, you know, year three, it's easy to cut him and save money or something just, just to manipulate the cap. But, um, man, we all agree on this. It, they can't just stand pat. And I, and I do think they're planning on doing something big at that position in the draft, even in a worst case scenario, if you can't or don't want to commit any money to a veteran free agent between now and the draft. Um, I think they've kind of shown their hand in a bit by trading for Dunbar, kind of hedging that so you don't have to go chasing corner high in this draft. Um, offensive line, they've done that by hedging at some spots there, although I think we both agree they need to add some things there. So um, you wrote a piece last week uh, for Seahawk Maven talking about some trade down scenarios for the Seahawks. Mm-hmm. We all know uh, that John Schneider loves to trade down as a history of doing it. And the more I look at this draft, the more I think it's imperative when I first looked at the draft board though, I had a hard time finding matches, but you came up with some good options.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think that the uh most obvious option seems to be the team he trades down with every year, the Green Bay Packers. Uh they're sitting there at, you know, pick thirty, um, Seattle at twenty-seven. Uh there seems to be, you know, something there that could work out. Uh, for both sides, I would imagine the Packers would be quite interested in if if the draft board falls this way, would be quite interested in trading up to try and acquire uh, a wide receiver, somebody that they could put opposite um, of uh, Devonte Adams. And if a guy like, for example, Jalen Rager were sitting there at twenty seven, yeah. I would probably want Seattle to take him because I really like Jalen Rager. But if you're if you're you know Green Bay And you're sitting here with, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers on the back end of his career. Uh, It's kind of, you know, you could, I think you could see why that would make a little bit of sense for both teams. Um, The trade would allow Seattle to move back, but still stay in the first round, which is nice because you can get that fifth year option of your first round pick. Um, And it also allows you to trade back even more uh, if that's the route that Schneider wants to go. And we have seen Schneider trade from the, out of the first round multiple times. Um, it was, we saw him trade down. one year he went to Atlanta and then he went down to, I think it was even San Francisco in that draft. He double dipped and traded out of the first round entirely. So, um, I think green Bay is a pretty good fit there. Um, I think that, uh, another pretty good fit. And I actually think this one might be the best one. The New York giants, With the, I believe they have picked 37. Um, That is a uh, fascinating uh, team there because they have quite a few high draft picks here. Seattle trading out of the first round is scary, but you can net a third and a fourth round pick to move down 10 spots. And you kind of look at where the draft board's going. It doesn't appear that a guy like uh, Yeter Gross Matos is going to be there. Kind of seems like he's played his way up you know, into the high twenties. It's even starting to kind of be a little bit hard to see a guy like Austin Jackson or Josh Jones. Those guys are going right around where the Seahawks pick, you know, but there are some scenarios where multiple guys like that are on the board. Uh, Maybe not gross mottos, but maybe it's Austin Jackson, Josh Jones, and you like Lucas Niang from TCU. And maybe you say, well, we want to, we're going to go tackle here. There's no edge that we like. So let's trade down. We, we understand we have a good idea of what teams are looking for here. So we'll trade down to 36. We'll probably get one of those tackles. Maybe it's Isaiah Wilson. Um, you know, we'll maybe get one of those tackles. We'll trade down and we'll add third and a fourth round pick, maybe a fifth round pick, um, depending on what kind of chart, what trade chart you like to use there. But I think, you know, I look at green Bay. I look at, I look at, uh, New York, and I think those are the two most likely because it's as it sits right now, I don't see a team really trading back into the first round for a quarterback, which is, you know.
0: No, in fact, now it sounds like I, I'm seeing uh, mocks and projections and and anonymous quotes from other GMs now saying that Jordan Love's going to go way higher than um, than he's previously been expected to. I think the, the run on quarterbacks is going to be big early. And that's why I like the Giants too, because I think someone... And here's why. You look at the trade chart, and like you said, if, if the Seahawks wanted to dr- drop all the way down to their pick at 36, uh, I like to use the Rich Hill chart. It's based more on actual trades over the last five, six years. The, the Giants have a late third and an early fourth. That would be a little bit of an overpay from them. But sitting at four in front of Miami, who everybody knows is going to take a quarterback, to me, especially with the Giants having multiple needs and there's a lot of depth at the top of this draft, I could really see. In fact, I'd, I'd be surprised if the Giants don't trade back to a team looking to jump in front of Miami mm-hmm. if they don't trade up with Detroit or Washington, um, which would give them, you know, extra picks in the second and third round that they could then turn around if they wanted to get aggressive and move back into the first round. So I think, especially when you look at the AFC East and how wide open that division's gotten now. Uh, that these organizations all have to think there's an opportunity to make a move there. So I I do think more so than I did a month ago, I do think there are going to be a lot of opportunities. The question will be, there are some who feel that because the draft will be all virtual, um, that it might be a little tougher to execute some of these trades, just communicating with people and getting picks in on time and things like that. Um, but knowing John Schneider and knowing how, how, good of his vision is at knowing the lay of the land and what other teams are doing and thinking all of his good contacts and and he has such a good rapport with so many other front office execs um i'm sure he's got his plan a b c d e outlined or will the morning of next two thursdays from now so that it will be easier to execute oh no doubt no doubt. Um, you know, and, I, and they need to do it. They, mm-hmm. It's such a bizarre draft for what the Seahawks need the most and where it falls. Because you said it, up until about a week ago, I was able to get Gross Matos every single time at 27 if I wanted to stay there. Mm-hmm. And he's essentially the perfect player worth staying at 27 to take for what they need right now. And we just spent a bunch of time talking about that. But now I'm seeing him go as high as 15. He's in the late teens, early twenties. Now he seems to be ascending. I heard Jeremiah talking about it on NFL network last night. Um, I don't think there's an opportunity there to get him. And if, if he, or some other shocking, surprising, if chase were to drop, maybe would be an example. Um, you have to trade back because the end of the first round, early second round, when you look at everyone's big board, is loaded with corners, receivers, and running backs. Yep. And as tempting as it would be to take one of those receivers, there's so much depth in this draft. You can get a contributor in the third, fourth, fifth round even. Same with running back. So it makes sense. I've even played around with some ideas where they trade back all the way to the Colts' second pick at 44. Yep. Um, that's another organization that matches up well with some of the picks they have to offer. Um, so I'd be... We we know this, they're not going to stand pat and take their seven native picks. No, no <laughs> chance. Uh, let's get specific about a couple things before we go here. Um, give me your, your, let's keep it to three, your favorite prospects right now. And it could be regardless of draft position, regardless of position, just guys that you really love that fit the Seahawks right now in one way, shape or form.
1: Uh, okay. Just three, huh? Um, so.
0: Just three. We don't have all day. All right. Uh, well, anyways, I I, I think we do. I do actually, (laughs) I actually do have all day. The people
1: listening to the podcast don't, uh, (laughs) that's right. Well, maybe they do, but anyways, uh, you know, the first, the first guy that really is stood up to me and there's been a lot of guys who've actually moved up my, my personal board quite a bit. The last couple of weeks as I've been kind of hunkering down and watching these things. One of the guys that really stands out to me is Zach Moss. He's running back out of Utah. Um, -hmm runs with a really wide base, uh, impeccable balance. He'll, you'll see him get, you know, like not necessarily flipped up in the air, but there's, there's a run that he has. And I can't remember who it's against where he gets like his, his ankle basically gets bent sideways. So his ankle is touching the ground. Um, but he pops, but he's able to maintain his balance, stand up and run for like another six or seven yards. Um, he's not a home run hitter. Uh, he's not the guy who's going to break, you know, the ADR touchdown runs, um, but he catches the ball pretty well. He's very active in pass protection. He loves to throw his shoulder into linebackers and DBs. He's physical. He's tough. He's nasty. Runs a little bit like Marshawn Lynch. You had, you're, if you remember, Marshawn Lynch used to get really low to the ground and his legs mm-hmm. never seemed to come together. That He was so right. far wide in the base and he was really strong in the thighs that he could just power through guys. Zach Moss is pretty similar and he's going to, you know, you're not going to tackle him with half effort. You're going to have to square up. And get him, or you're going to have to get lucky and trip him, um, which is going to be hard because he has really good balance. So Zach Moss is a guy that, in terms of specifically what the Seahawks look for in running backs, I think I would probably have him at number three on my board um, for a running back or for a Seattle specific. I think you know a guy like Jonathan Taylor is the ideal fit here for Seattle, but probably not going to take him where you'd have to. Right. Uh, and then I think um, the running back from LSU. Um I can't remember his name now. <laughs> Edward Solaire. Yes, Edward Solaire. Yeah. I, I think he's probably number two for me. Um, but I would have Moss there and I, I like Swift. I you know, I like Dobbins, but I just don't feel they don't seem like Seahawks to me, to be honest. Uh Zach Moss does. Um, another guy who is really kind of moved up my boards pretty significantly over the last week and a half, I would say. Devin Duvernay from Texas. Mm-hmm. I really like watching Devin Devin Duvernay play football. Uh, he's fast, he's physical, you know, he's not a guy who's going to wow you. He, he ran very well at the combine, but everything else was below average. Um, you know, he's not explosive. He doesn't jump out of the gym. His three cone drill was pretty bad, but you know, so was DK Metcalf's so that worked out fine. So, right. but you watch him on tape, the guy gets open and when he gets the football on his hands, he's a home run hitter. You know, the Seahawks have a lot of guys who can hit home runs, you know, DK Metcalf can hit home runs. Tyler Lockett can hit home runs. What Devin DuVernay does well is he turns doubles into triples and triples into home runs. He takes yeah. the extra base, to use a baseball analogy. He'll catch the seven-yard slant, break a tackle, and then he's 30 yards downfield before he's to get chased down. Oh, he turns doesn't into a happen. running back. Yeah. He, I, so he looks to me when I watched him, he looks a lot like Golden Tate in that he catches the football, he can break the first tackle, and then he looks for contact. Um, so I really like Devin DuVernay. Um, I, that's a guy who is probably, as far as I know, he's moving up boards right now. He's probably a third round pick ish. Um, but with the depth at wide receiver, maybe he falls into the fourth. I would be fine if Seattle took him with, you know, one of the second round picks. Um, I'd prefer him in the third, but you got to do what you got to do. Um, so Devin DuVernay is a guy here. Um, and you know, I don't want to. I don't want to go offensive heavy because I know they're going to take a lot of defense in this draft. Right. But a guy who I only recently really started to like, uh, Van, uh, Van Jefferson from Florida. Oh yeah. I you know I watched him a couple months ago and I just kind of like yeah like yeah he's he's fine. Um, and then I didn't watch him and that's always a mistake. You need to watch these guys as much as you can. And I've watched him recently. The guy gets open like he's an excellent route runner. I think he's the best route runner in the class. It's either him or Judy. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's just a lot to like about a guy who can get open instantly. It's pretty good frame. I think he's six two, um, strong hands, but he's an excellent route runner, uh, and a guy who can get open. He can work the slot, I think. And I think, you know, I look at a guy, I look at DK Metcalf. I look at Tyler Lockett. I look at a guy like, uh, Philip Dorsett. They're all very fast and they all can get open. But they're not exactly guys who create a lot on their own. Whereas a guy like DuVernay certainly does. He, get, he racks up the yards after catch. Van Jefferson, little more of a little more of a route runner, not quite as elusive as DuVernay, but he can definitely make some things happen. Um, you know, It's not uncommon to see him get open by four, five, six yards. Um, and so I, I like those weapons for Russell Wilson. He said he wanted some stars. Um, I don't know that any of those three guys are stars, but I think they immediately help right away. And as an added bonus, Van Jefferson is very good on special teams, which we know matters to the Seahawks. So, um, those are three guys that have kind of really moved up my, my personal board here, um, quite a bit over the last, I would say two weeks. So those are three guys that came to mind.
0: Yeah. And I, those are all three guys that have been on my favorites list, um, on and off mostly on from the beginning of the process i think you nailed it moss just looks like a seahawk running back um and i think the knocks on him that he's not explosive are ridiculous because when you can take a guy that's a a physical running back that can run between the tackles and run people over and break tackles but also has that kind of cutback ability i think that mitigates not having you know home run speed i think he's he's plenty quick enough when you look at his It's pretty rare to see a guy that size have that kind of change of direction ability, and Lynch is the the right comp for that. And I was kind of late to the party on Duvernay because I I honestly I didn't look at him early in the process because I thought we don't need another small receiver. Um, You know, we've got Lockett. I expect I expect John Ursua to be a contributor this year, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad I watched him because uh, he's so unique, and we know that the Seahawks like unique players. And it's funny that you mentioned Golden Tate because I was talking to Bill Olfstead last week about Duvernay and he brought up Debo Samuel. And then I I was literally (laughs) tossing and turning in bed, unable to sleep a couple nights later. And it it popped into my head like, oh my God, he's Golden Tate. The way that he bounces off guys after the catch and, uh, and the way he kind of runs upright, uh, the little choppy steps, the way he's willing and capable as a blocker, even his size. I mean, he hunts guys down, uh, in the run game, uh, is something that we know is going to appeal to the Seahawks. Um, and then Van Jefferson, I keep hoping I'm always frustrated in mock drafts that he goes as early as he does because he's an overaged prospect mm-hmm. in an incredibly deep class without any elite traits other than his route running ability. And he's now he's coming off core surgery. I just keep thinking, come on, this guy's got to fall, right? I mean, if he could, if he could somehow fall into that end of the fourth round where we have two picks, it'd be, it'd be a steal, Incredible. but, um, yeah, yeah, all good picks. Yeah. And you then, know, it's, uh,
1: it's, it's interesting real fast here, just to go back to Duvernay. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the website mock draftable. Um, but basically what they do is, is they take the testing numbers, uh, from the combine or pro days that they're available And they compare them to a database of every player who's performed at the combine since like 2005.
0: And And they kind of come up What's that? And where he's been taken.
1: No, just the, just the, uh, the physical tools only the 40, the, the, uh, you know, the vert, all that stuff. And it's just looking for athletic comps. And when you look at Duvernay, his number one comp with a 91% uh, comparable rating, which is off the charts it's golden Tate.
0: Oh, that's funny. So how even did I not know about this? Yeah. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. Team. Yep. Yeah.
1: It's, it's insane. He,
0: he almost, yeah, he's perfect. 91% golden yep. Tate. And then he drops down to, uh, 86.8% Lee Evans, which seems odd. Right. <laughs> um, how did I not know about this web- website? Thank you, my friend.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fun, man. It's fun to kind of go through and look at the, the player comps. Um, um So it doesn't tell you everything. You still need to watch the watch the highlights and the film and all that stuff. But it really does back up Duvernay in particular that he really is Golden Tate. So that's what that's
0: why I like him quite a bit. Last question uh, for you today, because we always have to be ready for the Seahawks to do something we're not expecting them to do. Sure. Obviously, the best example that is two years ago, it was Rashad Penny in the first round. Um at a time when when people thought that that was that was not the need. I didn't mind the pick at the time just because I liked the player so much and I knew he wouldn't last till their next pick. Um, what if the Seahawks were gonna do something two weeks from now that would shock us all and probably have that initial reaction of what the f are they doing? What do you think it would be?
1: Oh boy, well, I'm gonna take quarterback off the table because that would certainly um, yeah uh, but uh, I honestly, I I look at the draft and how things fall here. Um, I know I have a buddy who would want me to say that they shock us by trading up. Um, that just, it's not John Schneider's style. Um, but I, I, think, you know, the biggest shock, I think a lot of people would be very upset if they drafted a running back again, somebody like Jonathan Taylor. Um, and while I wouldn't love that pick though, I, I don't think it's a bad pick. I'm not a guy who's never drafted running backs in the first round. Not even a guy never pay running backs. Like I, I think you had to take it by a case by case basis here. So that would be fine. But I think the thing that would shock me the most um, aside from, you know, quarterback or kicker or whatever, the stuff that's not going to happen. I think I'd be pretty shocked if they took a safety in round one. And what's crazy about that is though, is I could kind of justify it. Like if you're talking about a guy like Xavier McKinney, who can kind mm-hmm. of play the slot, he can play strong, he can play free, and you're looking at it, you go, well, we can cut Bradley McDougal and save five million bucks. He's a free agent after this year. You know, you talk about uh earlier Dunbar and Griffin. Um, and you know, McKinney's not exactly a corner, he's not an outside corner, but he could manage there. I think there's a, a poor man's um teammate of his from Alabama who I'm drawing a blank on now. <laughs> uh well, that's embarrassing. Uh, he plays for. He got traded from the Dolphins to the the Steelers this year. Oh, train, um, uh, um.
0: <laughs> Trey! Yeah. Uh, no, uh, Kirkpatrick. No, no, no. I'm thinking no, of Trey no, no. Kirkpatrick. Yeah. Uh, no, he was the guy that we wanted the Seahawks to yeah, trade for last year, but the the Steelers had a higher pick.
1: That's why it's uh, annoying. I can't think of his name. It, safety, but I'm going to yeah, save he,
0: us both and and Google it. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> But no, he, I, just,
1: I think he's a, a poor man's version of that. And, and that's a, an appealing player, no matter how good your secondary is. But yeah, if they took a safety after, you know, Marquise Blair and Quandre Diggs and they have Bradley McDougald, they took a safety in the first round. I was I'd be pretty It's surprised. not Kirk.
0: I was thinking Dre Kirkpatrick, but it's Minka Fitzpatrick.
1: There you go. Minka Fitzpatrick. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> kind of reminds me of a poor man's version of that. So that'd be a bit surprising. I know uh, I have a buddy who loves Jeremy Chen. Um, yeah. and he's, he's been pounding the table to take, take him in the first round. I just, with the needs that you have right now and the way the board kind of sets up, I just don't see it. So safety would be pretty shocking to me. Um, the other thing that would be relatively shocking, I would say is a, a trade of the first round pick for the Yannick and or the, the Matthew Judon or whoever it is. So,
0: yeah. uh,
1: those two things would probably shock me the most.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's it's tough. I I think what they've done in free agency and what they've done to set themselves up for the draft it's a bit of a trick question because because you could make a case that there nothing they would do in this draft right. positionally would surprise. But I agree with you on the strong safety aspect. If they take an obvious strong safety, I won't be surprised because it's hard for the Seahawks to do. But I'll be I'll be pretty pissed right. because they invested so much in draft capital and Marquise Blair last year. And, uh, regardless of, I can see, I can see taking a safety if he's a slot guy. Yeah. Um, I, I made the case for McKinney last week in, in the mock draft I did with Bill Olfstead, where we specifically took players we haven't taken before. So I was kind of looking for a reach, but I could make an argument because of just what you're talking about, that he's a guy that can play. Um, he can play the slot. I'll just be upset if they take a chin, um, or a Duger, uh, in the in the late first or even in the second round because because what does that say about how they feel about Marquis play? They've missed on so many safety picks and they've invested so much in it the last couple of years. It's kind of like the new offensive line where the picks just aren't working out. I'll be really upset if they do that. Not shocked um because they like to do that to us. But um yeah, I would I would think that would be the least likely thing that we'll see, other than quarterback.
1: <laughs> right. I mean I guess you never know. They, they apparently Man. they were willing to take Patrick Mahomes a few years ago if he had fallen to them. But uh, yeah, I think you know. There, there's a part of me though that loves to see Seahawks Twitter freak out. So there is a part of me that's rooting for Jonathan Taylor in the first round because you know there would be people out there yelling to burn it down.
0: Um, oh, I've already had those discussions with people. Just just suggesting it, just posting a mock, looking at how the draft would fall if you did that which you can actually make a pretty solid case that it falls okay. And that it's the right thing to do. I, it it was, uh, yeah, they wanted to, they wanted to take me out to the woodshed.
1: Yeah. I, I
0: love Seahawks Twitter.
1: I really do. Um, it's
0: almost as fun as Mariners Twitter.
1: (laughs) Uh, it's certainly, uh, very similar apathetic, uh, without much reason to be though. That's the fun thing about Seahawks Twitter is there's really not a lot to complain about. So we almost have to make stuff up to complain about. And
0: I, you know what? I think some of that will happen too. If they take a guy with their first pick, that's a, that projects as a left tackle. The Seahawks Twitter, a lot of it will freak out because they won't, they won't see the long-term thought process in it that, you know, each year now could be Dwayne Brown's last year that 2021, his contract gets really team friendly as far as cutting him and saving space and that, and that the smart thing to do would be to take that guy this year. So you're not chasing him next year. Um, I think that would- yeah, it'd freak a lot of people out because they wouldn't see him on the field right away.
1: I'd actually love that. <laughs> like yeah. a few of my favorite guys that I've liked at twenty seven or if I trade down, I really like Austin Jackson. He reminds me physically of yep. Dwayne Brown. You know, I, I like I like Isaiah Wilson. I like Matt Pert, who's probably gonna go second or third round. I like yeah. Ezra Cleveland, I like I like a lot of these tackles. It's a good tackle class. And if they take somebody who can replace Dwayne Brown, hopefully now or later and potentially compete with shell at right tackle. Now I don't have any problem with that, but I think you're right. I think a lot of people, you know, you spent all that money on shell and Brown and you're going to draft a tackle when you need pass rush or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I so I think, I think it's possible. You're right. There. It's a huge I heap. would, I would I've, I've actually come. be very happy if they took, Yeah. Yeah, I'd be very happy. That and that I've come Jackson. full
0: circle on the right tackle idea too. You know, when I when they when they signed Shell and and I kind of got up to speed on the type of player he was and and looked at his analytics and all of that, I thought, okay, right tackle is good for this year because before that I had a huge draft crush on Isaiah Wilson. I've come, mm-hmm. I've circled all the way back around now to know that would be a luxury pick. To uh, not only would I love the pick because I th- I think he would probably at some point this year beat out Shell and be a just a stud long term but I watched him again this morning and, and the tape just screams that I guarantee you he's high on the Seahawks draft board. I promise you he is. He's exactly the, you talk about Zach Moss epitomizing a Seahawk running back. Isaiah Wilson epitomizes what they like in a right tackle.
1: Yeah, he does. I I think, um, there was some reports even that there was a possibility that Isaiah Wilson was going to go a lot higher than people thought. Right now he's kind of projected as a mid to late second round pick. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a report the other day that said, you know, Wilson's probably going to end up going in the first round. And my initial thought when I read that was John Schneider's fallen in love. Uh, because yeah, yeah right? to your point, he just, you know, we talk about guys who are Seahawks. I say yeah. Wilson's a Seahawk. It's just a matter. It's a formality at this point, just a matter yeah. of paperwork, really. So, um, I saw a report but,
0: this morning that one GM thinks he's going to go ahead of Andrew Thomas, which I, I don't buy at all, ooh, but, uh, ooh.
1: Yeah. Man alive. That's in which case, you know, if Andrew
0: Thomas wants to fall, then okay, I'll I'll be okay with that too. And then you you touched, I I just wanted to, you, you mentioned Ezra Cleveland, and he's one of the most perplexing and frustrating draft prospects for me to evaluate in this class, along with his teammate Curtis Weaver, because in some ways they epitomize everything the Seahawks would look for with the athletic traits. At tackle and with need and how he matches up and the type of player he can be long-term in his ceiling, but he just has those, those short arms that are, that are much shorter than the Seahawks have ever drafted at tackle. And that have some people thinking is going to end up at guard. I can't, I can't figure out if, I guess maybe that would fall into my surprise category. If this year, because the draft doesn't line up, like we've seen it at corner, not a lot of guys with 32 plus inch arms in this draft. So will they, because of the need this year and the way the draft board falls this year is this the year we see them kind of go away from some of those specs and, and kind of bend their rules a little bit to get a guy that they think is great in every other way. It's going to be fun. It
1: will be. I'm looking forward to it. We're about what, two weeks out from today is day one,
0: two weeks from tonight.
1: That's, that. that's awesome. I, <laughs> I really need this. Um, I think a lot of us do. I think a lot of us are really looking forward to this. Um, you know, it's, it'll be fun. I know I'll be in, I'll be in touch. I'm sure with a lot of the, a lot of the staff at, uh, at the Seahawks Maven. And I'm sure we'll all have some uh, pretty unique reactions to what they do. Um, and that's the fun part, man. That's really what you miss about sports is just the, the interaction and the talking of the sports and the different opinions that arise from it. I think that's, you know, I think that's a lot of what people miss right now about sports in general. It's just the, the community impact it has um, and it'll be nice at least for three days to pretend that it's all back. So yep, I, I'm really looking forward to this year's draft.
0: Uh, that makes two of us. Well, Colby, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me on the show. It was great to talk baseball and football with you uh, again, Colby Pat node. Um, follow him on Twitter. If you don't already check out his stuff at Soto Mojo and Seahawk Maven. And uh, thanks for jumping on, man. It was good talking to you.
1: Not a problem. It was a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime.
0: All right, there you have it. Lots of Seahawks, lots of Mariners talk. Hopefully that uh, helped you to pass an hour or so, what, almost an hour and a half of your day during this uh, quarantine life. I failed to uh, give you Colby's Twitter handle, so let's do that now. It is CPAT11, C-P-A-T-1-1, uh, at CPAT11 on Twitter. And again, uh, Definitely check out his analysis at SotoMojo.com and also Seahawk Maven. Um, Does a great job there for both of them. Uh, Thank you again for listening to episode 78 of the Dan Cave. I will be back with a bonus episode tomorrow. I'm going to take a look at uh, some Twitter draft crushes. Many of you gave me um, your favorite Seahawk draft crushes, so we'll detail those. And then I'm also going to give you, as I promised last week, uh, we're going to run through them all in one episode. Um, Seven players for seven rounds. I'm going to take each position group. Uh, I'm going to cheat on one, no spoiler alerts on that, and um, we'll go over for each position group one Seahawk prospect I like um, that I also see as a viable target in each of the seven rounds, so we're going to do that tomorrow. Definitely hit subscribe so that you get notification as soon as any new episodes are listed. Um, Lots of draft talk coming up in the next couple weeks and a couple more special guests on tap. So look forward to that as well. Also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at Seahawks Forever. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with that special episode. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, go Seahawks, go Mariners, and go Cougs.